So this week we're continuing in this series about heartbeat of discipleship, and just as we uh, get into this this morning, uh, I'm going to remind you, 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 should, you should have received in the mail uh, a card, looks something like this on the outside, uh, and you'll notice on these cards that these are, these are individual, there's one per person, it's not, a, it's not a family kind of thing, it's an individual thing, and then on the inside is a uh, the worship plus two commitment uh, you're making for 2018. I want to be clear, this is, not, this is not a volunteer thing. This is your commitment about what you're going to do for your spiritual growth. Now, folks on the staff, they're going to take these. They'll make a copy of this and mail it to you so you'll have a, a reminder. And if you say you want to be involved in something new, somebody will contact you about that. But the primary purpose of this is for your spiritual growth. Um, and when we come up to take communion, uh, there's baskets here on the side and in the back. Uh, you'll bring this with you when you come to take communion, receive communion, you'll place it in the basket. Now, if you did not get one of these in the mail, or if, like certain people I know, uh, you got up here this morning and it, it's still at home, or you never got that round to it you were looking for, um, right? Uh, the ushers have some of these in their hands, and they are happy to pass them out. So if you need one of these this morning, if you'll just put your hand up in the air, they will bring you one, because... They're standing by and ready to do that this morning as they come in. So as they're passing those out, uh, just keep your hand up till you get it. As they're, and, you know, prop it up and get your neighbor to help you. As they're passing those out, I'm going to remind you the, uh, the overall kind of passage that's passed out of Matthew's gospel, the, the Great Commission, uh, where Jesus commissions the church to go and raise up disciples from all nations, all peoples. And this is the, the, the unique call, the unique commission, the one thing we do that no one else does. Uh, and this is what comes distinctly and uniquely to us as followers of Christ. And in this particular congregation, the way we've talked about that is leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, to grow in his image. And yes, it does do the EKG, and that's why it's the heartbeat of discipleship. And yeah, we thought of that. That's, uh, yeah, I know it's kind of schmaltzy, but that's what we came up with. So, uh, so, so yes, there, there, there's that, and that's very intentional. Uh, so, but as we get started, I want to I kind of move us, as we're talking about growing his image, I want to move us to a particular passage in Matthew's gospel, um, wherein John has been arrested, he's in jail, and Jesus has begun his ministry, and, and at this point in time, there's still, um, you know, some, some confusion about what exactly the Messiah is going to be, and is it going to be a political kind of role, a military kind of role, what's it going to look like, and all that, and so John sends a query out to his cousin Jesus. When John, in prison, heard what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his, John's, disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? And hear that, that uncertainty there. And Jesus answered John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And go and tell John what you're hearing and seeing, that what I'm doing is living out the prophecy of Isaiah about who the Messiah is to be. Literally, that's what that is. He's saying, you know, go tell him what you're, what you're hearing and you're seeing. So, so, you know, that raises for me the question, if somebody was to come to, come to us and say, well, you know, our are you really a follower of the one, of the Messiah? What would you tell them to look at and to listen to in your life that attests to that? Let's pray. Almighty God, 
Open our hearts and our minds and our spirits by the power and the presence of your Spirit. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I was thinking about all this this week, and you know, one of the things that I thought about, I remember back at one time there was a, a PBS series about training dogs. It was on something by the lady by the name of Barbara Wodehouse. Anybody remember Barbara Wodehouse? Any PBS? Okay, so you remember uh, people would come and they'd have these dogs and they'd be complaining about the dogs, you know, how awful the dog was and the dog was mean, the dog didn't behave and blah, 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 and go on and on and on. And her whole thing was there are no such things as bad dogs. There are only bad dog owners, right? It was all about the way the owner did it, right? And so I started thinking about that and I thought, well, you know, if you rearrange that a little bit, let's see. You know, we have people that talk about how awful God is and how bad they've been treated and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, I, I think the truth is it's, re- it's really not about God. It, it's, re- it's about the bad ones of us who are God's people. Um, and, and we sometimes mm, are uncomfortable with that. But, but part of our call as God's people is what those of us in the Wesleyan movement call uh, the second half of the gospel. You know, the first half of the gospel brings you up to the point of conversion and salvation. And the second half of the gospel is growing into the image of Christ. And that too many of us don't embrace that. So that when people encounter us and we share the gospel with them, it is less than appealing. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about what it means to grow into God's image, to have the second half of the gospel become real in your life. I'm going to go back and look at some familiar passages here right quick. This is the first one we've done. You've worked with this before, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, not physically to offer yourself, but in your living, uh, to present your body as an act of worship, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed, don't be shaped by this world, but rather be transformed, literally metamorphed by the renewing or or, or actually the repentance of your mind by changing the way you think and the way you understand the world so that you are looking to discern what's the will of God. In other words, we're we're not supposed to look like the world around us. Uh, We're not supposed to be shaped by the world around us. We're supposed to be transformed, changed by by the very word and will of God. That's what's supposed to be going on in our lives. We should look different from the people around us. We don't look to the world for for decisions about what's acceptable in our lives and, and how we should be living, but rather we look to God. And we decide that instead of living like the rest of the world, we allow God to change us to live as God would have us change, in accord with God's will, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Philippians, Paul reminds us, you know, just as you've always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that phrase, work out your own salvation, sometimes sounds to us like we're supposed to be working to earn our salvation. That's not what that means. Another way of saying this would be to say, live out your own salvation. Make the gift of your salvation real in the way you're living out in the world. 
take that gift of salvation and let it reflect in everything you do. Because God, who, who gave you that gift of salvation, is still at work in you. And it's got at work in you that enables you and empowers you both to desire to live as God would have you live and to be able to do that. But it's the statement that on the other side of salvation, you're supposed to still be living into God's love. You're supposed to still be living into that gift of salvation. It should be visible in your life and reflected in your life. And only as God dwells within you will you be able to do that. And you will only be able to do that if you have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's this sense of, of humility, of understanding that we're going to have to get ourselves out of the way. We're going to have to be humble enough to be obedient to God, e- e- even if that's unpleasant, and to live into that in the same way that Christ did. Now, we, we tend to oftentimes hear this as, as individual mandates, but I want you to understand that in the New Testament, it, it's also, uh, it's not just about you alone, it, it's about the body, the, the whole body of Christ. So the writer of Hebrews reminds the, the congregation, he says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And, and in some translations will say stir up, but I like that word provoke. Uh, it, means, it means to speak for or to speak to. In other words, we're supposed to be talking to one another or talking for one another, you know, proclaiming to one another uh, the need to live you know, love and good deeds. I mean, we're supposed to be provoking. And provoking has kind of this connotation of being annoying, right? You know, if somebody provokes you, it's annoying, it's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's the sense of, uh, of encouragement, but not just encouraging one another in the sense of good, nice, warm feeling kind of stuff, but sometimes kind of encouraging each other in ways that are comfortable, right? Not, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more is that you see the day approaching. I mean, this, this sense of encouragement, of, of urging one another, of holding each other accountable, of, of encouraging. This is why, you know, we encourage small groups and being in small groups is to, to be there so that you can provoke each other uh, to be living into your faith uh, so that you can speak to one another to be living in the faith. You can encourage one another. And if necessary, you can annoy one another into living into faith because sometimes that's what it takes. Jesus had this uh, saying that he uh, gave in Matthew's gospel, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, I want you to hear the word perfect this morning not as our uh, kind of OCD thing you know that we have as you know without fault but I want to hear as, as the word really means in, in scripture it means complete. Uh, to be complete as your, as your heavenly father is complete. Be complete uh, be whole as your heavenly father is, is whole and complete. That's the, the word he speaks. And Wesley grabbed hold of that. John Wesley grabbed hold of that idea of being perfect and, and created an idea out of that he talked about as Christian perfection, um, that this is what the goal of the second half of the gospel was, was to be made perfect in God, to be made complete in God. Um, and so the, the, the way that happens is by God's indwelling in us, his grace becomes something Wesley called sanctifying grace, which is God's unearned, unmerited, loving action on our behalf. That's grace, but it's, it's grace making us holy. God growing us to be holy, to be set apart for God, to be set aside for God. In other words, it's not that we are making ourselves holy, but rather that God is working in us. God makes us holy. God acts within us. This is what we are called to do in the second half of the gospel. Uh, to live into that. 
uh, in his sermon um, on the new birth, he says, uh, and incidentally in here when he says his in the beginning of this, he's referring to the believer, and, and this is his language, but it could be you know, his or her, either one. He says, God is continually breathing, as it were, upon the believer's soul. And the believer's soul is breathing unto God. Grace is descending into the believer's heart, and prayer and praise ascending to heaven. And by this intercourse between God and, and the believer, this fellowship with the Father and the Son is by a kind of spiritual respiration, the life of God in the soul is sustained. And the child of God grows up till he comes to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Um, this breathing in, it's, a, it's the same kind of images as you have in Genesis where God breathes life into the clay and uh, where God breathes life into the scripture, God breathes life into the disciples and uh, Jesus does in John's gospel. That here the, the spirit is breathing life. With every breath we take, we're breathing in God's spirit and life. And, it, and it's that breathing in of God and that breathing out of prayer and praise, this kind of movement of the spirit wherein we are enlivened and we are grown from being childish in our faith to to the measure of the full the full measure of the stature of christ that's the goal to be grown into that place and i promise you if we looked if we looked like the full measure of the stature of christ the gospel would be much more appealing to the world the gospel would be much more appealing to the world now unfortunately what tends to happen with this is that um, we tend to take this and kind of deconstruct it a little bit in our modern society. I mean, first off, uh, a, a lot of us kind of, we, 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 we hit this and we think, oh, well, you know, nobody can really do that. You know, that's not really realistic. And so we, can, we kind of modify that. Well, you know, we're going to try, but we're not really expecting to get there. Now, Wesley was very clear. He knew some people that had achieved it. I'm still looking for him. But, but, but you know, he, he was clear that it was possible. But, but we tend to want to kind of say, ah, oh, that's really not realistic. You know, it's just kind of pie in the sky stuff. And, and we kind of, you know, modify this a little bit. Or, or we say, well, you know, really, we're, we're, we're just not that bad. We really not. We don't need all that help. You know, we're not all that bad, are we really? And and Kevin Watson in his book on the class meeting is is writing about that, talking about you know the people who want to tell us, well, you know, we're really not that sinful, or we're not all that bad. And then of course, you know, you pick the newspaper up and you read some of the headlines, and you're going, oh my gosh. And he says, well, but then what we say is, well, of course, you know, you can't expect them to be perfect. After all, you know, we're only human. So he says, well, which is it? You know, are we really not all that bad? Or are we really not all that good? And, and he has this wonderful quote, the same people who deny original sin, who feel that people are not that bad, are also adamant that nobody is perfect, that no one is capable of living a life free of willful sin. So which is it? Are we capable of avoiding sin or incapable of avoiding sin? The operating view of too many people is something like, people aren't all that bad, but they're also incapable of being all that good. What a depressing and inaccurate view of human nature and the possibility of life in Christ. I mean, it's kind of like we've, we've kind of all decided to settle for kind of a spiritual mediocrity. And, you know, I don't think that's what God calls us to. I mean, the world can give us plenty of mediocrity. That's, that's easy to find in our world. But doesn't God call us to more than that? I mean, isn't the God who is perfect working in us able to achieve more than that? So Wesley says, no, you know, we're called to this Christian perfection, this kind of thing. And, he, and just to be clear with you, Christian perfection does not mean certain things. Come on. 
there we go, does not mean infallibility. It does not mean that you will never make a mistake again in your life. Trust me. I don't know anybody that can claim that. It does not mean infallibility. It does not mean superiority. It does not mean that you're better than other people. Uh, when we do Emmaus walks, one of the things that we, we tell the pilgrims toward the end of the weekend is, you know, you've had this amazing experience and you've been out here, and, and today you may go home feeling like you are a better person than when you came on the walk, but you are not a better person than anybody else. It's not a place to claim superiority. It's not immunity from life's problems. It doesn't mean that suddenly God's going to wave the magic wand and everything in your life's going to be perfect and fine and hunky-dory. And it's not an instantaneous faith accomplished. Yes, I am playing with the word on purpose. Um, it's not instantaneous. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you got it all. But rather, it, it's a process. Remember, respiration of breathing God in and, and growing and reaching that place where what is perfection? Here it means perfect love. It's love excluding sin, love filling up the heart, taking up the whole capacity of the soul. Getting that place where we are so filled with the agape love of God that there's, there's really nothing, no room for anything else inside of us. And you know, if, if you were to encounter someone like that, wouldn't that be powerful? Wouldn't that be someone you'd want to be with? Wouldn't, that, wouldn't you want to be able to live that way? Wouldn't you want to be able to have what they have? I mean, someone who's in that place who's, whose heart is so filled with that and full of the agape love of God, I mean, this is, this is someone who's not going to be able to turn their back on, on, on the pain and the hardship of their neighbor. And this is someone who's not going to be able to sit down and, and ignore the homelessness in the world and the hunger in the world and the injustice in the world. And this is someone who's not going to be able to sit and be happy in their salvation while somebody else is out in the darkness. And that's the second half of the gospel, to be called to that kind of perfection, to be brought into that. Now, I want you to hear this really clearly. When we do these cards and we bring them in here and all that, uh, you know, doing all those things and all that, or, or if you go to a reunion group, going to the things that amaze people, uh, you're, you're checking off the things. You know, this, this is not about uh, going through the mechanics of stuff and it's automatically going to happen. Because, you know, there, there's really nothing you or I can do to make all the fullness of God come to dwell in us, right? Only God can do that. There's really nothing you and I can do to make the love of God be poured into us. Only God can pour the love of God into us. What, what we can do is put ourselves in a position to be humble and to be receiving. Uh, Thomas Johnson used the word, the language this week in staff worship. He said, we can put ourselves in the way of God's grace. Well, we're in the way that God's grace is traveling. And that's what all this is about, about these spiritual disciplines. It's putting yourself in a position to receive. Because uh, Jesus reminded his disciples, you know, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches, those who abide in me and I and them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, it's not about what you're able to do. It's about what God is able to do in you. So about, about a year ago, in my morning devotion time, uh, there was a devotion that uh, J.D. Walt wrote on, on the Seedbed Daily Text, and it really struck me uh, and has stayed with me. So I'm going to share that part of that passage with you. It says, The Christian life, or as Paul will describe it to the Colossians, the life hid with Christ in God is not difficult. It is impossible. 
Maybe this is our biggest problem. We think it is difficult, and because of this, we resolve to try harder. When we come up short again and again, we consider it too difficult and settle back into a life of easy believism, cheap grace, and self-satisfied, mediocre, compromised existence. And man, he was just walking all over my feet that morning. And he may be walking all over your feet this morning. Because I think <laughs> that's where a lot of the American church is. You know, we're Americans. We, we, we pull it up. We do it. We're, we make things happen. We work hard. And so we try to, to make this happen by dint of our own effort. And then when it doesn't, you know, eventually we, we just kind of give up and say, well, this is as good as it's going to get. And we settle. J.D. says, the Christian life is not difficult. That would be to evaluate it on our terms. The Christian life is impossible. It does not require more effort on a human level. It requires the movement to an eternal level of living. Jesus' invitation to us is not meant to elicit more resolve, but deeper surrender. You see, to grow in his image means... To be disabused of your pride and your ego. To decide it's more important to look like him than to look like you. To get yourself out of the way so there's a place for God to dwell. It's not about you trying that much harder. It's about you giving up and letting God work in you. So over the holidays, the uh, Clifton household engaged in a nature project. Uh, they bought one of those kits, you know, for, with uh, caterpillars that turn into butterflies in it. And, and, uh, and uh, Reverend Clifton chronicled some of that in some, some photographs. So, you know, this is how it starts, you know, with the, the little bitty, you can see the little bitty tiny worms down there in the bottom. And that, that stuff at the bottom is the food that they're feeding on. And so they start off like this. And then before long, they grow into what I think my wife would call the creepy stage. Uh, where the worms are a little bit bigger and all that. And, you know, you're looking at that worm and you're thinking, that don't look like no butterfly to me, right? But somewhere in that worm is that possibility, that potential. And, and, and so you continue to, to take care of them and feed them. And pretty soon they begin to attach themselves to the lid of this container. And, and then they spin a chrysalis or a cocoon. And then the amazing part happens. This, this, this worm that you've watched for this time grow and everything and spin all of this, uh, they begin to break out of the cocoon and, and you see these butterflies beginning to come out that don't look anything at all like the worms. And eventually this, this beautiful creature emerges from that. Now if you ask Reverend Clifton what she'd tell you is, you know, we bought the thing and you know, we took care of it, we provided the environment and all that, but, but and, and she, we've been very clear, you know, she, she takes no credit at all for the change of that caterpillar into that butterfly. Because only, only the power of God makes that happen. And, and that's what we're talking about, is placing ourselves in the right environment. Placing ourselves where we can be fed. Placing ourselves where we can be nurtured. So that God can do what God wants to do within us. Surrendering ourselves up to God. And allowing God to shape us, to grow us, and to create us anew. So that we reflect the image of Christ to the world. To be so filled with the fullness of God. To be so filled with the love of Christ. That there is no room in us for anything else.
So as we go into 2018 and, and you look at those spiritual disciplines, that's what that's about. Putting yourself in the position, creating the environment, and then getting yourself out of the way so that God can do the work of transformation. Last week, I pronounced a blessing over you and asked you to receive it. But this week, I want to do it a little differently. I'm going to invite you to stand as you are able, and I'm going to invite you to extend your hands out over your brothers and sisters. And with me, I'm going to invite you to pronounce this blessing upon each other. So if you would stand as you are able, and just extend your hands out over your brothers and sisters. And then with me, let's pray this blessing upon each other. Behave down there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen.